Craig Kaufman is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Oregon and a member of the United Nations Knowledge Network on Harmony with Nature. He's authored numerous works on environmental politics, ecological law, and sustainable development, including The Politics of Rights of Nature, Strategies for Building a More Sustainable Future, MIT Press 2021 with Pamela Martin. He is currently developing the Eco-Jurisprudence Monitor, which tracks ecological law initiatives worldwide. Professor Craig Kaufman, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And so you've really dedicated your career, by and large, advocating for the rights of nature. For those of us who don't know exactly uh, what that and Earth law means, just tell us what it is and what it is in practice. Sure. I think it's important to recognize that rights of nature is one aspect uh, of a larger movement that's happening around the world to try to change our legal systems to be more consistent with the way sort of the natural laws or the order of the universe that actually exists. That is to say, rather than trying to bend nature to human will, to try to change human legal and governance systems and other sorts of systems to adapt to the way that nature actually works, that natural systems work. And that's reflected in a number of different ways in different cultures around the world. Rights of nature is one of the ways that that happens, but it's not the only way. Some cultures prefer to frame it in terms of responsibilities rather than rights. And so a lot of my work, while it originated as a study of rights of nature, I my current work sort of expands out and looks at how similar, how there are different eff efforts to try to achieve the same goal through different sort of legal provisions that codify underlying principles of ecological jurisprudence in different ways. But the, I would say that one of the common characteristics is this idea, the assumption that there is a natural order to the universe. That is to say that there are, you know, and, and that's reflected or expressed through different ideas in different cultures and different languages. So in Western science, you know, we might think of these as the laws of physics and biology and sort of the laws governing how ecosystems function. In other cultures, particularly indigenous cultures, there's an added spiritual or metaphysical component. But regardless, there's some underlying values that are common, which is the idea that today's legal system is based on an incorrect or faulty understanding of how the natural world works, because it's based on a mechanistic view of the world that emerged during the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries, which views nature as a machine composed of fragmented independent parts. And at that time, lawyers, you know, before that time, most cultures had customary laws that viewed the world as a living organism. And this view was replaced by lawyers in what we think of as the Western world with a new view of the world as sort of stocks of independent resources that can be extracted to produce economic wealth. And this emphasized the idea that humans are separate and apart from nature and can manipulate it. But scientific advancements since that time show that this is an incorrect view of the natural world. We now understand that the world is not a collection of discrete parts, but rather a dynamic and fluid interconnected community of life that's better understood in terms of patterns and relationships. And in, in the language of Western science, we call this ecosystems, right? And the nature of systems is that the parts are all interconnected through interdependent reciprocal relationships. So each piece 
is dependent on all the others. And importantly, I want to emphasize that this includes people, right? So humans are, of course, also part of the ecosystems. So from this perspective, we should see humans as part of nature rather than separate and apart from nature. This is kind of a long background to explaining some of the common underlying principles because one of the main sort of common underlying principles is this idea of recognizing the interconnectedness among all elements of nature. And because of this, recognizing that there are reciprocal relationships and the well-being of the ecosystems that provide the conditions necessary to sustain life um, is necessary for the well-being of all the, the interdependent component parts means that we need to value all of the underlying you know, members of this living community. And that's one of the underlying common principles. And that includes human and non-human members of what you might think of as the earth community. So that's one of the first sort of underlying principles of ecological jurisprudence. And then a second one is that we need to ensure that human behaviors and the systems through, you know, through which we behave, that guide our behaviors, whether it's our economic systems, our social systems, our legal systems, and so forth, need to be ecologically bound. In other words, we need to be able to adapt to learn to live within the limits of ecosystem functioning and planetary boundaries when we're talking about environmental problems at the global scale. You know, in other words, and so you know, current environmental law tends to prioritize, you know, makes three fundamental mistakes, we think. One is that humans are separate and apart from nature and superior to the rest of the natural world. And then two, that all elements of the natural world, apart from humans, can be understood as sort of objects that are human property to be used any way we like, including to be destroyed, if that's what we want to do. And this idea that the overriding goal of all systems should be exponential growth and consumption in perpetuity, right? And so one of the second underlying principles is that the goal should be this to be able to sustain the functioning of the systems that provide the conditions necessary for life. Right? So that's an, a second. And then there's often a justice component, this idea of ecological justice, which is about ensuring equitable access to the earth's sustaining capacity, both for present, but also future generations of humans, but also non-human elements of the natural system. Because again, we're all interdependent and therefore our well-being is dependent on the well-being of the whole, so to speak. And also to kind of ensure equitable allocation of any environmental harms that happen. And so these are some of the underlying principles that are common across. And I said in, in some cultures, particularly, for example, in the United States and many other so-called Western cultures, where we are very rights-based culture. And so we express what we value by giving them rights and so and you know and so that's part of the reason why in some places these these principles are codified you know rights are given to ecosystems as one way of trying to instill in our legal system these underlying principles the idea of nature or an ecosystem environment belonging to not just us as humans, but to a corporation for them to do as they wish is really, it's just so unfair. I and mean, when you might say that your water has been poisoned, you have to prove it. You have to prove that you've been damaged. Otherwise, 
it's just an ob another object. It could be owned by those who really abuse those laws. So just, you know, explain how establishing rights of nature and earth law, because nature can't speak up for itself, that there's a principle of a, a guardian, a guardianship is appointed. Yeah, so you, you've raised a couple of different issues that I think uh, would be helpful if I took them one by one, because each of them is important. And so I, before I get to the guardianship issue, I, I want to address something that you referred to earlier, which is the difficulty of showing standing in the sense, like in a court showing that you are harmed, right? Well, and so this gets at why some communities, particularly in the United States, but in other places are using rights of nature strategically to expand community rights to defend themselves and the ecosystems on which they depend for their well-being against environmental harms by, often by outside corporations. And the reason why and so let, let me just give you an anecdote or an example. Uh, so a common situation in the United States is that there's a community um, of people, often in rural areas, often in very conservative areas, what, what we in the United States would think of as maybe sort of conservative or, or Trump country. And the reason why I mentioned that is because these are not places that are often thought of as you know progressive environmentalists or so-called tree huggers, right? But they're adopting these rights of nature legal provisions because they're finding that they can be a useful tool for enhancing or strengthening their own community rights to protect themselves against environmental harms. And let me explain why, right? So a common scenario in the United States right now is rural communities where natural gas companies will come in and inject the wastewater from their fracking operations into local well systems, create injection wells that seep out and affect the potable water for these communities. And, and these, as I said, these are often relatively small rural communities that rely on well water, say, and you know, they begin to experience health problems. And of course, you know, other problems related to this and their first reaction often is to assume that this can't be right, that they as, as they should have, as a community, should have rights to be able to defend themselves. And so they hire lawyers and try to sue the, the fracking company to force them to stop or to prevent the injection of wastewater. And they find, much to their dismay, that actually the law is not on their side, right? That, that at least in the United States, the way our law is written, it privileges corporate property rights and their and communities really don't have any rights to stop these kinds of actions. And they're shocked about this because in the United States, we have this notion of democracy, meaning local people should be able to decide what on policies that affect them directly. And so they get very depressed when they understood when they understand that actually the law legalizes pollution that is affecting negatively their health in, in very serious ways. And so some of them get angry and then they realize, well, if the law is legalizing and causing this problem, then we need to change the law, right? And so then they begin to look for other legal strategies and many of them come across this idea of granting community rights, but then expanding the notion of the community to include not only humans, but also the rest of the ecosystem, then recognizing rights of the ecosystem to main, to exist, to maintain the functioning of its natural cycles, to be restored when damaged, and so forth. 
And then they recognize the right of local community members to speak on behalf of the ecosystems, particularly in courts of law. And the reason why they do that is because, as you, as you said before, if under existing law, if they wanted to try to say sue the company for say health problems of their children or something, it's very difficult for them to prove, to show a direct link between the actions of the fracking company and the health problems of, of the child, right? Because the lawyers for the fracking company will say, well, you have no way of knowing whether or not these health problems are actually caused by our activities. It could be genetic. It could be that they were exposed to something else somewhere else. And the way the law is written, the burden of proof is so high, it's virtually impossible to meet. However, it's scientifically very easy to show the direct cause of injecting you know, toxins into the ecosystem and how that negatively affects the functioning of the ecosystem to provide you know, clean water. And so if you recognize the right of the ecosystem to maintain its health and well-being, you empower local community members to speak on behalf of the local ecosystem, it's much easier to show legal standing. That is to say, to show a direct harm and then to have standing to challenge that in court. And so that's one of the reasons in the United States that they're being uh, rights of nature is tied to community rights specifically and is being adopted for strategic reasons, even in, in communities that probably don't think of themselves as, you know, environmentalists. So that gets at the guardianship question, I guess. So that would be a case of a community being appointed guardianship on on another level. I don't know, like with global governance, I, I don't know how it works in different um, mm -hmm. arenas. Yeah, I think it's important to to discuss how there are many different ways this is being set up and there are pros and cons. So I would, I think it's an easy way to explain it is there, you can group them into two broad categories. And in one category, well, in each category, each of guardianship structure is influenced by the way that rights-bearing nature is defined. <laughs> so these things are linked. Uh, so it matters in the, in the legal provision how you define what nature is that has the rights, specifically whether you define rights-bearing nature as very broad, just sort of like all nature, not conceptualizing it as nested ecosystems versus picking one very specific ecosystem, like a forest ecosystem or a watershed or you know, like the Great Barrier Reef in Australia or what have you, and then appointing a guardian body for that specific ecosystem. So when you, when you define nature very broadly as sort of all nature, as happens in many of the U.S. municipal ordinances or the Ecuadorian constitution and some other places, you know, it's kind of hard to know how to, how to assign specific guardians because you're defining nature fairly abstractly. And so what tends to happen is guardianship is structured very broadly as well, where everyone has the authority to speak on behalf of nature if they choose, but it's voluntary to do so. And so typically that's how these things are, are phrased and structured, that anyone can, can speak. It addresses the issue of legal standing by simply saying anyone can have legal standing before a court to try to defend nature's rights if they perceive that there's been a violation. 
but nobody is obliged to do so. It's voluntary. The other model tends to of guardianship tends to occur when a very specific ecosystem is being addressed, like the Himalaya mountains in Nepal or the Great Barrier Reef in Australia or Lake Erie in the United States. And these tend to be you know, ecosystems that are well-known and beloved, and they're chosen specifically to try to raise awareness of the importance of that ecosystem and to try to put a face on it, right? Again, this is one of, I think, one of the lessons that was learned from the history of human rights, where, you know, decades ago when the human rights struggle was underway, well, well just beginning, it's of course still ongoing, uh, I think activists learned that when you talk to people about human rights in the, in the abstract, it's harder to get them to care in a way that will mobilize them to action. But they learned that if you can put a face on it, you know, and show, so you may recall there were advertisements in the 80s and 90s where you would have a photograph of, of you know, a child or someone else who was a victim of human rights that, that was easier for people to kind of understand and relate to and it was more effective in mobilizing action. And I think rights of nature activists have learned that the same is true, that it's often hard for people to really grasp what rights of nature means, particularly when you're talking about nature in an abstract level. But if you talk about a very specific beloved ecosystem that everybody understands why it's important, it's a lot easier to sort of you know, portray and communicate why they should care and why this is important and mobilize them to action. But then also you can identify particular sort of boundaries or borders of that ecosystem and identify local stakeholders who are integrated into that ecosystem and often have an experience of sort of interacting and caretaking and so forth. And so then you can create a guardian structure, a guardian body made up of local stakeholders. And then you make it not voluntary, but they are obliged to represent the interests um, of the ecosystem, not only in courts, but in all decision-making bodies. And so one of the advantages of this model is that when you assign a group of people to represent the ecosystem in all policy arenas, and you can em embed them in a new integrated ecosystem management body that is dedicated to you know, managing human behaviors in that ecosystem in a way that allows the ecosystem to sustain its cycles and its functioning to evolve naturally and be restored and so forth. Then you can incorporate rights of nature upfront into decision-making. And therefore you don't have to rely so much on the courts later on after there's been a violation. And so the, I think one of the lessons that's been learned over the last decade is that can often be a much more effective way of approaching rights of nature than to wait for a violation, you know, say anybody can go to court after the fact and try to, you know, sue the court and hopefully get, you know, restoration after the fact. <laughs> that's problematic part just because it's retroactive, but also because it can create a collective action problem. You know, it's costly to go to court and to try to fight on nature's behalf. And if it's voluntary, you've got to rely on people who can come up with the resources and time and energy to do that. And the nature of collective action problems like this is when you have 
costly action like that, there's a tendency to be like, I want someone else, to, <laughs> I want this to happen, but hope, you know, since anyone can do it, maybe someone else will do it. And so then if everybody thinks like that, there's a lot of times where action just doesn't get taken. So working with all these local governments, there's a lot of factors that are different in each place that you're working, I would presume. But a lot of your works, especially with rights of nature, point to a sort of cycle of understanding environmental law and theory and the philosophy, and then using that for experimentation on a smaller scale, and then use that to evolve, further evolve jurisprudence that would be used on a larger scale. So my question is, how has this worked for you and your team? And are there enough constant factors to be able to use smaller experiments and then use them on larger scales. Cause you talk about all these different unique ecosystems like the Great Barrier Reef or the Himalayas. So what troubles have you seen with that or how has that worked successfully for you? Yeah, so that's a really loaded question that I could answer in a bunch of different ways. So let me say a few things about that. The first thing I wanna emphasize is that when we think of rights of nature, the term, I wanna just remind everyone again that the term rights of nature tends to be applied to two different things. One is this underlying sort of legal philosophy that is actually broader than just rights of nature that, that's probably better understood as ecological jurisprudence that may or may not be expressed in terms of rights. But because rights of nature is gaining a lot of attention, that term tends to be applied to represent this broader underlying philosophy. And then of course, the other way it's used is to refer to the legal provisions that explicitly recognize rights for ecosystems. And so because the nature of the underlying legal philosophy is such that rights of nature, it's difficult to draw, to scale up lessons because you really need to adapt it to the local ecosystem, right? It really needs to be um, localized and embedded. It's hard to to take a, a one-size-fits-all approach with this um, because each community that's embedded in their local ecosystem needs to figure out how to adapt and live within the boundaries and limits of the ecosystems in which they're embedded. However, so I just wanted to put that out there. The other thing you referred to was this experimentation that's happening. And, and so because of that, you see a lot of experimentation with different kinds of models and it's being structured very differently in different places. And I think there are some lessons about what has worked better than others in a, in a broad general sense, which I think is what you're getting at with your question. And so I think one of the important lessons that's emerging is if you start from the premise that these rights of nature legal provisions are not the end in and of themselves, they are simply a tool for trying to change the underlying paradigm of our legal systems to be more consistent with you know, the natural order of the universe to allow us to live within the boundaries of ecosystem functioning, then it's important that these legal provisions you know, explicitly embed these underlying principles into the law, right? That's the idea. And rights of nature laws can do that to the extent that they are bringing in these underlying principles of ecological jurisprudence. And that tends to happen better when you explicitly recognize unique rights for ecosystems, that you don't just treat them as if they were sort of humans, <laughs> but rather you recognize that ecosystems have unique rights that are different from humans, like the need to maintain their, their functioning of their cycles, to evolve naturally, to be restored and so forth, right? That, and then when you combine that with 
other kinds of language that emphasizes this interconnectedness of humans with other members of the larger earth community, that's going to push you further along in that goal, right, of underlying paradigm change, if you will. But for a variety of reasons, a number of countries are are codifying rights of nature in a different way that's called legal personhood. And there they are just essentially assigning the same rights that are given to humans and corporations and ships. And as was noted earlier on, you know, humans have a long history of recognizing things that are not humans, treating them legally as if they were people, all right? Corporations literally are just collections of property, but we treat them legally as if they were people because it's useful for us to do that for a variety of reasons. And there's a number of other examples of how we do that. And so in one sense, you could say, well, if we do that for things like corporations, how much more important are ecosystems to us, given that they provide the conditions necessary for life? We should, at a minimum, give them the same rights as a corporation so that when there are conflicts, courts are better able to balance these competing rights. And there's, you know, I understand that argument and that makes sense at a certain level. Um, but the problem is if that is the only way, if you limit the rights of nature law to simply saying we recognize, you know, this ecosystem as a legal person with all the rights, duties, and responsibilities and liabilities of any legal person, and that's it, you write in, there's no other element of, ecological jurisprudence put into the law or the legal provision, you are basically just anthropomorphizing the ecosystem and inserting it into the anthropocentric legal system, which at a minimum does nothing to change the underlying paradigm and often has very first negative impacts that are counter to the goal of rights of nature activists and sort of ecological law activists generally. And I can give you a, you know, you're from India and you're in India right now. India is a great example of this. You're probably familiar with the court ruling about the Ganga River and the Ganga and Yamuna, Yamuna rivers, which is an example of how judges who are sympathetic to this idea and are frustrated with the inability of existing environmental law to actually solve environmental problems are trying to think creatively about how you provide greater protection. And there are a number of judges in countries around the world, India being one of them, where judges have strategically interpreted existing laws to justify recognizing the rights of ecosystems, even when there is no law that explicitly recognizes rights of nature. Right? But to do that, they then have to base their decision on, on existing sort of anthropocentric legal doctrines. And so the way that the Indian judge did it was to note that India's government has for years been charged with trying to clean up the Ganga River and has failed to do so adequately. And so made the legal comparison of, made an analogy saying that this is sort of like a child who is neglected by their parents, right? And that when it, you know, in situations where childs are neglected or abused by their parents, the state can essentially take custody of the child because they are helpless, so to speak, and then appoint guardians 
to to serve on their behalf. And so it's it's more complicated than this, but uh, I just want to use this example to illustrate how the perverse incentives can come about. So the, the judge used other interpreted other existing legal provisions to justify recognizing the Ganga and Yamuna rivers as legal persons, exactly the same as if it was a corporation or something like that. And then used this analogy of you know a neglected child to justify appointing guardians that would defend the interests of the rivers, and they were court appointed guardians, just like you would do if you had an autistic person or a child, someone who is incapable of speaking on their own behalf in a court. In locos parentes is the legal doctrine for this, like in place of a parent, a court will appoint a guardian for people who are incapable of defending themselves. And so then there was a, a number of state officials were appointed from this province, and including the district attorney who was supposed to be the legal guardian. And of course, they immediately, the guardians immediately became concerned because the way when you when you have in loco parentis in this legal doctrine, guardians not only speak on behalf of their charges, but they're also liable <laughs> for anything that the charge does. They're either responsible as well. And so they guardian, the appointed guardians immediately objected saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. Are you telling me that the next time that the Gunga River floods and kills people, which happens every year, pretty much, that those people can sue me because I am now liable for whatever the Gunga River does? No, that's crazy, right? And so they appealed to the Supreme Court. And I think it's important to emphasize that in their appeal, they said, look, we're not saying that we don't think the Gunga and Yamuna rivers should have rights. <laughs> you know, or is deserving of rights, but this guardianship arrangement is just unworkable and it's creating, and I guess the larger point I want to make is this, because the idea of rights of nature was expressed without the underlying ecological jurisprudence principles, it was highly problematic for a number of reasons. First of all, it totally flipped on its head, sort of the underlying conception of how humans should see their relationship with nature. To put it bluntly, if anyone's going to be seen as the parent in the relationship, it should be nature. Not So this idea that humans are parents that need to just treat nature like children and take care of it replicates sort of this false idea that humans are capable of, you know, knowing the complexity of natural ecosystems in a way that they can manipulate it and control them. I think it's clear at this point that we, we can't and we don't understand the complexity and trying to bend or manipulate nature to our will is folly. It's producing the, the crises that we're facing right now. And again, the whole basis of the underlying philosophy is that instead we need to learn how to adapt. And then on top of that, then it also, you know, it creates perverse incentives for the ones that are supposed to be caretaking. You know? And so I think, and there are a number of, of, of reasons that it's, that it's problematic to do that. But the, the overall, the overarching lesson is that it's problematic to do that because you're essentially just anthropomorphizing nature and then inserting it into the anthropocentric legal system without resolving any of the underlying problems of that system. And so, so it matters a lot how you structure rights of nature.
My name is Richa Kalva. I'm in my third year at Boston University studying biomedical engineering and philosophy, and I'm an associate interviews producer for the Creative Processes One Planet podcast. I initially approached this interview process with my persistent sentiment that many environmental justice efforts are merely a de jure change or a marketing move and often not executed in a holistic way. Examples of this being dishonest, sustainable seafood labels from the Marine Stewardship Council, or the almost inescapable but tempting illusion which we call conscious consumerism. But I quickly realized that rights of nature goes much beyond these efforts. It's not a label on a product or a corporation that plants one tree for every 100 displaced. Rights of Nature is a movement working to mobilize the idea that ecosystems have legal standing, can be named as an injured party in a court of law, and that humans have a legal responsibility and authority to recognize these rights and more importantly, enforce them. This movement is not only protecting different ecosystems, but it is equipping and empowering hundreds of peoples and communities who otherwise might not have a strong enough legal standing or voice to advocate and produce positive impacts on the well-being of their own environments and lives. This is action that's happening all over the world. In Nigeria, working to create a national campaign to raise awareness of Earth jurisprudence, or in Sweden, to recognize ecocide as an international crime, or in Bangladesh, establishing the Vulnerable People's Development Organization in response to eroding cultural identity, environmental changes, and the high incidence of human rights violations amongst the indigenous people in the Chittagong Hill tracts of Bangladesh. The list goes on and on because it's not just one organization doing all the work. It's a movement that mobilizes and facilitates the activism of a land's own people for the land. You can read more about the specific publications, organizations, and actions being supported by the Rights of Nature movement globally on the rightsofnature.org. Kaufman's involvement with the Rights of Nature movement in conjunction with his vast knowledge of working with grassroots movements to redefine global norms by translating indigenous views of nature into Western neoliberal legal systems are evidently fueled by his inspiring conception of nature. He describes ecosystems as systems of interdependent reciprocal relationships, not just a machine made up of independent parts. This view embeds humans within these ecosystems as both beneficiaries and contributors. I'm really glad that he prefaced this program with this extremely important realization, as it, in my eyes, addresses a more important and genuine motive behind the push to de-anthropomorphize our view of nature. It urges us to admire nature not only as a capital resource, but for its complexity, its deserved supremacy, and its role as an example to us, and to have this deeper understanding and respect be the reason for our preservational efforts through law and science. This, to me, seems very different from common campaigns in environmental jurisprudence. In the 2012 UN Conference on Sustainable Development in Rio, attendees agreed that in order to achieve a just balance between the needs of present and future generations, it is necessary to promote harmony with nature. But do you believe that present generations even owe limitations in their achievements and luxuries to future generations? And why is this necessarily true? And does this reason not contradict the goal of de-anthropomorphizing nature as it urges us to preserve ecosystems solely for the benefit of future generations of humans? 
Therefore, it becomes clear that the only way to create and motivate genuine and effective environmental change is through discovering our own personal love and respect for the ecosystems that serve us, such as Kaufman seems to have done. If you're just joining us, Mia Funk and I are talking with Craig Kaufman about his achievements and findings in the fields of environmental justice, political science, and the crossroad between the two. Back to the interview. It's important, I understand that one, we're trying to shortcut it or helping us uh, conceptualize because it was a new concept, not in indigenous communities, not, right. uh, but in Western society where we're so advanced, and I say that in air quotes, that we needed something to understand it, to, to give us a conceptual framework. And for us to understand, I mean, you have, not only are you an, an academic, you have an extensive experience on the ground specializing in Latin America, I mean, just to speak of the countries and, and their systems and how they've approached in different ways, Ecuador, Peru, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Israel, Cyprus, and New Zealand, I believe. So could you just speak, although this is so broad, could you speak of some of their different approaches? As you mentioned, Ecuador having brought rights of nature right into their constitution, but there are a variety of approaches. And what do you see that you know, has worked really well, or what can we learn from different, those different approaches, grassroots movements? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd like to give you two different examples since you, that I think will help illustrate some of the larger lessons that can be applied more generally. And they both happen to be lessons from indigenous approaches, but one in New Zealand and then one in, in Ecuador. So I want to start with the New Zealand one because I think it provides a good counter story or comparison to the India example that I just gave. So in New Zealand, there are a number of acts of parliament, national laws that recognize specific ecosystems as legal persons. And I think it's important to emphasize that those weren't, well, so those came out of treaty settlement negotiations with Maori iwi or tribes dating back to uh, the Treaty of Waitangi, and there have been historical violations of that treaty. And in the 1990s, the New Zealand government set up this process for resolving those treaties. And interestingly, the rights of nature legal provisions didn't emerge as a result of activism by rights of nature act advocates. They were actually just put in there as, again, a strategy for overcoming obstacles in, in the treaty negotiations, which is, again, why they're framed in terms of legal personhood rather than the broader sort of uh, unique sort of rights of ecosystems that you see in the, in the Ecuadorian constitution. Uh, so I'll give you one specific example. So in the forest, Te Uruera uh, is the historical homeland of the Tuhoi people. And in their treaty settlement negotiation, they were, of course, asking for the return of their land. Their historic homeland was this forest, Te Uruera, that over the period of many, many decades was gradually taken away from them. And then was eventually, I think in the 1950s, converted into a national park and became one of the country's more beloved national parks. And so, you know, they were, demanding as part of this treaty settlement sort of what they termed as the return of the land so that they could re-restore their connection to their historical homeland because their the culture of the tribe is such that they have this 
you know, it's linked to a specific territory that they think of in terms of a kinship relationship. And so, of course, you know, the New Zealand government being Western lawyers assumed that this meant that they wanted title over the land, right? Because they think of this in terms of property, because that's just the way that Western lawyers think. And so there became this debate over who was going to have ownership title over the property. And this became really contentious because again, this was a beloved national park and the prime minister basically came out and said when they were close to a settlement, you know, said, this is a bridge too far. The idea of, of essentially giving the Maori ownership over this beloved national park was just going to be politically untenable. Eventually, though, the, the lead crown negotiator realized, I think really wisely, that the Tuhoi were not actually asking for ownership of it in the in sort of the legal sense. They didn't actually care whose name was on the title in some piece of paper in the capital. They wanted in, in practice to have the authority to manage how people lived in that territory so that they could restore their traditional practices and their relationship to the land. And so because many members of the negotiating team on the crown government side were environmental lawyers, they were aware of writings on legal standing for nature that were had been around for decades. And so it occurred to the chief crown negotiator that if they that they could overcome this obstacle perhaps by recognizing the forest as a legal person and then it could own itself. And then that way, the Crown government could say, we're not transferring ownership to the Maori. And the Maori could say, you know, the Crown government doesn't own it. And so you sort of sidestep this issue of sovereignty, right? Because as, as some of the Maori negotiators told me, they realized that, you know, the reason why ownership was so important for the crown government is that ownership, you know, property gets at issues of sovereignty, who has the authority over this sort of thing. And they, they wanted to emphasize, we're not trying to challenge your sovereignty. We want to re just restore our relationship to the land. So that ended up being a successful sort of strategy, but then that raises again, the question of then who speaks for the forest and who then has authority for deciding how humans are going to behave in that area. And so they then set up a guardian body that was made up of nine people, six of whom are Tuhoi and three of whom represent the crown government. And importantly, once they're appointed, they are charged with not representing either the Maori or the crown, but only representing the interests of the forest. But what was important about this legal provision is that if you ask the Crown government and the Maori, they will very quickly tell you that the legal personhood provision in their mind is actually the least important uh, provision in the law, because that's not where the ecological jurisprudence comes in. Rather, the Maori realized, well, they, they changed their strategy at one point, and they realized that it may be more important in the long run to try to change New Zealanders' understanding of how they should sort of conceptualize what this forest is. So they insisted on participating in the writing of the law, and they insisted on putting in a lot of language that recognizes the Maori conception of the forest, according to Maori cosmology, for lack of a better word. And this is where the ecological jurisprudence comes in. Right. So 
you have a lot of this language about the Teoruera being integrated whole living spiritual being that has a spiritual force and this connection to the local tribes and so forth and so on. And importantly, then the guardian, once that's recognized up front in, in the early section of the law, then the guardianship provisions flow from that because then the guardianship body is charged with creating, you know, a governance system for essentially managing human behaviors in a way that's consistent with the interests and the nature of Teodoro Huerta as this integrated living spiritual being. What the legal personhood provision does is just remove the forest from the pre-existing environmental regulatory framework, therefore giving opening up a window of opportunity to establish this new, more ecologically rooted governance system. So it was taken out of the national park system, which meant that it was no longer subject to the Department of Conservation's regulatory framework. And instead, this guardian body was had the authority and was charged with creating a new, essentially, governance system, which they did. And because the Tuhoi controlled that, it was done according to Tuhoi traditional ecological knowledge. And, and that's why it's it's a more successful example of implementing ecological law, even though the rights of nature component is still framed in terms of legal personhood, because they inserted the ecological jurisprudence through other provisions, specifically ones that re recognizing Maori sort of cosmovision, if you will. Talk more specifically about what that looks like in practice when they implemented that. But you asked about Ecuador, so I can then give you some other lessons about Ecuador. One of the more interesting things that's coming out of, of the Ecuador experience, I mean, one of the unique aspects of Ecuador or like, is that rights of nature is recognized in the constitution itself, which is the supreme legal body. And that, that means it has a lot of force legally in a way that's not true in other countries, right? So in the United States, for example, because of the nature of our political system, rights of nature is being expressed through local ordinances that are quite weak in a legal sense because they can get preempted by state laws and, and national laws and so forth. But that's not true in Ecuador. It's in the Constitution. And judges have to consider these principles in the because judges are obliged to take consider the Constitution in its entirety. And so, but because of political con conflict, particularly in the legislature, these constitutional principles were never elaborated on. Well, there's relatively few examples of national statutory law that elaborate these principles as is supposed to happen, partly because political forces that favor the continuation of mining and other extractivist industry didn't want to strengthen these principles. And frankly, activist groups and others that were interested in strengthening them were afraid that if they, they introduced draft laws, that opponents of rights of nature would use that opportunity to weaken rights of nature. And so they decided it would be better to allow the constitutional principles to stand as they are. But And that basically kicked it to the courts then, it meant that the courts had to, case by case, have to figure out how to apply this jurisprudence in any individual case. And so the jurisprudence underlying it in Ecuador has evolved gradually. And one of the more interesting things 
that has happened <clears throat> is that indigenous peoples that are off that are fighting against extractivism to protect their their territories from say mining or oil extraction have begun in relatively recent years really since 2017 but really picking up in 2019 have begun explicitly linking the rights of nature provisions in the constitution with indigenous rights and using rights of nature to strengthen indigenous rights claims and and at the same time the linkage in a way strengthens rights of nature because indigenous rights is recognized in international law in a way that rights of nature is not and so if you're trying to put pressure on a government international law can be useful in a sense and so what's happened is that you're increasingly having courts recognizing that because indigenous claim rights for example relating to prior consultation international law says that prior consultation with indigenous peoples has to happen within the context of their own cultural framework and so then indigenous some indigenous groups are arguing and a number of judges are are, are now recognizing that for those indigenous cultural frameworks the people themselves are actually tied to the territory, much in the same way that I just described with the New Zealand case. And so you can't sort of separate the people from the land. And that means then you have to consider the effects on the broader ecosystem when you're talking about the effects of the mining on an indigenous peoples. And when that gets combined then with the rights of nature provisions in the constitution, it begins to sort of strengthen the overall claim. And so judges are beginning to recognize what they're calling a set of biocultural rights. That is to say that human environmental rights and, and community rights like indigenous community rights as well as non-indigenous community rights and the rights of nature are all are a basket of rights that are all interconnected and interwoven in a way that it's not easy to separate. And that's had the effect of strengthening many indigenous people's claims and has in a few cases prompted the courts to annul mining concessions, for example. Yeah, I was I was about to ask what would policy that makes the wider parties of people see the intrinsic value in nature even look like, but I guess that linkage that you're talking about with indigenous parties and then the crown government or what have you is where it starts. But I think what you touched on regarding the crown government or the Western lawyers and such, seeing the importance of the connection between the indigenous people and the indigenous land is where it starts. And on a wider scale, if we don't anthropomorphize these features, how will we relay this intrinsic connection to, to wider parties? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that I've been really thinking about and struggling for a long time because I, I've done, you know, field work in a number of indigenous communities, like the ones that I described. And in those, so, you know, in places where indigenous customary law is consistent with the sort of the underlying principles of ecological law, then many of them see rights of nature as potentially a useful tool in the toolbox, if you will. And I, I do want to emphasize that, you know, 
indigenous perceptions of rights of nature is, is really mixed and varied for some, because this idea of rights is really a Western construct. Many indigenous peoples are very uncomfortable with the rights framing. So I don't wanna, but there are other groups that see it as consistent with their customary law and a useful tool and so, and so have decided to promote it. And so it's varied. I just wanna put that out there explicitly to acknowledge that that both you know, rights, of, you know, rights of nature is different from indigenous cosmologies, but that some indigenous peoples have been leaders in the movement because they presumably find it useful to do so. But of course, and in those cases, it's really a tool for recovering traditional ecological knowledge and practices, right? That's kind of what it's about. But what do you do in places like the United States and elsewhere where the paradigm change is not a process of recovering traditional knowledge, right? It's a process of fundamentally changing to a different paradigm that seems quite foreign and alien and counterintuitive and for some crazy and absurd, right? That's a much different and I think much harder process, if you will. And so I'm not sure I have the answer to that entirely. And I think that is the big challenge. And, and I think it's a process of normative change, right? In, in the end, right? One of the, I think it's clear to most, you, you start with people recognizing that our current approach has proven totally inadequate to solve the problem, right? In societies that value science, I think you can use the language of Western science and note that our environmental law has just simply not kept pace with advancements in scientific understandings of how ecosystems function. And, and just the very no nature that the natural world is not composed of independent discrete parts that can be rearranged and manipulated like a machine, but rather they are systems. And the nature of systems is that all of the component parts are interconnected and in mutually dependent relationships. And therefore, if you mess with one part of the system, it's going to affect the whole system, right? And, you know, if you can, I think you can try to reach some people by helping them understand, for people who are more comfortable in the language of science, I think you can help them understand that human relationship to the natural world better through the language of ecological science. I think also, you can help some people understand it better by framing the linkage between rights of nature and human environmental rights. So the concept of human environmental rights, like the rights to clean water, to clean air, the right to live in a healthy environment, is becoming fairly mainstream now. Most countries in the world recognize these human environmental rights in their constitutions or not national laws. And it's it's much less sort of controversial because it is emphasizing human well-being quite explicitly. What's happening is much like courts, some communities and, and activist groups, as well as judges and some governments are beginning to recognize that there's this interconnection between rights of ecosystems and human environmental rights. There are a number of court cases, not a, not a whole bunch, but a growing number that are recognizing that rights of nature may be a necessary precondition to enforcing and protecting human environmental rights. And this has been something that's been recognized, for example, by the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. And so it, it's gaining and a number of governments are starting to make this 
argument in international policy discussions. Basically, the logic is, you know, what good is it to recognize humans' right to clean water if you're not going to recognize the watershed's right to exist and continue to produce the water? I mean, so I think there's some movement to recognize that there is really a basket of rights that are all, you know, to the extent that you want to take a rights-based framing, <laughs> you know, if you come from a Western culture who is not just comfortable with the rights-based framing, but your whole system is based around providing rights to things that you value, then you have to start recognizing that because again, the nature of humans relationship to the natural world is that we are part of it and we are embedded in these systems and our well-being is dependent on the well-being of the functioning of the overall system. You then recognize that all of these rights are intertwined. So I think it's going to have to come through, through various framings. I think you pick the framing that has resonance in the culture that you're working with. As I said, in one of the examples early on, um, in our discussion, I gave the example of the conservative rural communities in the United States that don't consider themselves particularly environmentalists. For them, the framing that resonates is local democracy. Like we as a community should be able to say what happens to our local ecosystems that we depend on. So it can happen through a number of framings. And I don't think there's any one path. I think you pick the pathway that's, that's available given your particular legal, social, cultural system. Yes. And on the political spectrum, because you mentioned conservative rural communities, you know, do you fall within that spectrum of socialism? We know that socialism has been flawed sometimes in its implementation, mm -hmm. but looking at us all like we are one ecosystem, we all, it doesn't belong to us. You're talking about relationships. Where do you f fall politically? Me personally? So it, it is not obvious to me how that there is a natural relationship between ecological jurisprudence and socialism per se. I would have to think about that. <laughs> so it, I guess, so the term socialism, at least in the United States, is getting thrown around in a bunch of different ways and applied to mean many different meanings. If you mean, you know, as many critics of socialism in the United States, they tend to use the term socialism to mean sort of government top-down control over sort of everything that happens. It's not at all obvious to me how that would be consistent with ecological jurisprudence. Uh, I if think it's... I mean as opposed to capitalism because you're talking about right. other belief. So yeah, I'm going to try to answer that in a particular way. It may take me a while to get to get, because this is a discussion I have with my students a lot in my environmental politics class. There are some who are self-described radicals who would say that rights of nature means there can be no property. I don't think that's true, and the legal provisions that exist suggest it is not true. It certainly means that property regimes will likely look different than the property regimes we have now. So, for example, certainly there would be greater limits on, say, for example, corporate property rights. It might certainly need to say that you don't have the right to destroy your property, for example. And there may be many instances where you might want to replace individual property with collective property rights regimes, as happens a lot in indigenous societies. 
and certainly there's going to be some scenarios where ecosystems own themselves and they own their own property as happens for example in new zealand and so then similarly it doesn't mean if by capitalism you simply mean will there continue to be market exchange <laughs> then so I guess, I guess it depends what you mean by capitalism certainly it's I not certainly it's not compatible with the idea of exponential growth in consumption in perpetuity right so again the system needs to replace that goal with the goal of ecosystem functioning but i don't think that means there will be no market exchanges of goods and services it just means it will look different and ecosystems may be subjects in that market and not objects that are being exchanged so for example we people as well as animals and others still need water right so if an ecosystem if a watershed you know is a legal person that owns its own water then we would still get water from the watershed ecosystem but we would need to have a system that doesn't conceptualize this as a one-way extractivist process but rather as a two-way reciprocal exchange where the watershed provides water and in exchange we provide certain restoration problems for many people they have this difficulty in conceptualizing like what does it mean for a watershed to be able to like sell its water to people like what would that look like or what does that even mean and so I, the example i give to my students is conceptually it's not a lot different from when humans sell their blood to a blood bank right so there are many so legally human beings are individuals right and we think of them as, as sort of an individual subject but biologically we're actually a collection of nested systems right like we're collect our bodies are collections of 11 different systems skeletal systems circular systems so forth and so on that are all intertwined and work together to maintain the well-being of the overall system in that sense we're not really that different from ecosystems Right. And when we go to, you know, and so legally our blood is not, doesn't have the rights, <laughs> right? We, when we go to a blood bank and sell our blood to the blood bank, the blood is property, treated as property and it's exchanged. And in our purposes, we exchange it for money because that's what we value. Ecosystems have no use for money, so they would demand other things, right? But also importantly, I think the metaphor also shows when there are limits on how much a blood bank, how much blood they can take from our bodies, right? They only take enough to ensure that the system can continue functioning and regenerating naturally, right? If a blood bank were to come and sort of drain your blood, you would die and they would probably be prosecuted for murder. That would be considered a crime in the same way if we extracted so much water from an ecosystem that it was not able to sustain its functioning and essentially died, we could have a legal system that considered that a crime. And there are a number of governments that are establishing ecocide as a crime in their legal systems. Also, when you go to a blood bank, after they take the appropriate amount that's limited in quantity, they take as much as they can, but within the boundaries to maintain the functioning of the system. They don't then just send you out the door. They actually give you some orange juice or something else that's 
uh, rich in folic acid that helps restore, stimulates the restoration of your body's, you know, bl blood generating system. And in the same way, you would have a market transaction where in exchange, you don't just take the water and take off, there is a restoration <laughs> to ensure. So, I mean, we do, we do this already in our market exchanges. The idea is that you would have some sort of market system where you recognize there are limits on what you can extract and you have an obligation of restoration to ensure the functioning of the system. But it's not as though humans are not gonna continue to enjoy the, the benefits and services the natural systems provide, we rely on them for our life, right? And so I think many people misunderstand rights of nature thinking that, you know, like we'll go live in a cave and we will wall off nature and have no interaction with nature. It's actually quite the opposite, right? The whole point is to get past this idea that's rooted in conservation of where you wall off nature and have no human interaction with it. It's quite the opposite. It's to recognize that humans are part of nature and embedded in it. But because of that, we have an obligation to adapt, manage our own behaviors in a way that ensures the ability of the ecosystems to continue to function. I like that metaphor very much. It just explains it uh, so simply in ways that we can understand. And so, you know, you have vast experiences on the ground. And I think in closing, as you reflect uh, upon some of your memories of the beauty of the natural world, the things that what has moved you, what do you want to preserve for your own children, for future generations? What, what are some of those? There's so many. I, I have learned that I am a forest person. For me, the forest is a regenerating, rejuvenating place. And you know, when I need to be, become more healthy, when I need to just sort of think. So I am fortunate that I live in Oregon, which is one of the places in the United States, one of the only places where there's still old growth forest, and it's one of the more forested areas. And so I'm fortunate to live in a place where when I can't look at my computer anymore, I can just get out and in 10 minutes or 15 minutes be in the forest. And some of my most uh, productive work happens when I'm just hiking or walking in the forest. I am humbled and inspired by the perseverance and dedication of the community members and the places that I've worked that <coughs> often are among the most marginalized groups in terms of formal power, in terms of formal legal authority. But of course, they are far from powerless. They have many sources of power and they are strong. And I have been at awe by what a relatively small group of people with tremendous amounts of social capital can achieve when they decide they're going to dedicate themselves um, to trying to instill change. And I'm also humbled by sort of the lessons that I've been taught by indigenous leaders like Kirsty Luke of the Tuhoi people who were gracious enough to allow me to come in and learn from them and who were generous enough to help me sort of understand, understand their traditions, how they think about the world, because they have so much knowledge that frankly has been, I feel like lost to the society that I live in. I guess one of the realizations that I've come to is 
for for many people, for example, in the United States where I live, this idea it seems of rights of nature or just sort of adapting our laws and our governance systems to be consistent with the ecosystems where we live seems so radical. But I'm constantly reminded that for most of human history, that's how human societies were built and functioned. That it's actually not, we're not adopting a new paradigm. We're trying to go back, I think, to an old paradigm because we lost our way a little bit. Not a little bit, in some cases, a lot of it in some cases. And I think that can be empowering to recognize that. That's so, yeah, I like, I like it when you phrase it that way. If when you say we were, we're reconnecting to our old, our, our traditions too. We've talked about indigenous people, but we're indigenous people, all of us who had a relationship, a close relationship with nature. And it wasn't always one of dominance and ownership, but as you say, of relationships and respect. Yeah. Particularly in the United States, I can see that most clearly in, you know, in groups of farmers who are working on agroecology, right? Because it wasn't that long ago in the United States that our agricultural practices were, you know, it's like we're talking maybe 70 years ago in the 1940s and 50s before the onset of mechanized industrialized agriculture with the use of chemical fertilizers and, and so forth, where farming practices were much more sort of integrated, holistic, sustainable, and so forth. And so the knowledge still exists and I think most accessible and visible in that sector. It's true. Uh, there, there are many who haven't forgotten. And so we just have to transmit that knowledge and broadcast it. As you say, grassroots organizations are so important and we can learn so much from them. So thank you, Professor Kaufman, for your advocacy for the rights of nature and earth law, helping us understand the power of grassroots movements and how we might harness them, applying them to global governance. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your dedication to the environment and establishing new norms of global governance that serve humans, animals, and the ecosystems we're dependent on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and co-hosted by Richa Kalva with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Richa Kalva, and the digital media coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. The theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>